Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Hyperion Adventures Podcast. I'm Tom. As always, I'm with my gorgeous, super smart, and <laughs> 80s-loving <laughs> wife, Michelle. Thank you, sweetie. Hi, everybody. So good to have you with us. We are recording this episode on Sunday, January 26th, 2020. We just literally walked in the house from kind of a really fun weekend that we we yeah, experienced. Yeah, absolutely. We we got together with some family and uh, ventured uh, to a different area of Southern California, Pioneer Town, right? Right. Well, one, that's a place <laughs> I've never been to, but also we went to Palm Springs, which you had never right. been to. So, so what we did on Friday is kind of uh, went up and checked out the Palm Springs area. We met uh, Michelle's sister and brother-in-law up there and did Palm Springs for a little bit. The next day, we ventured out to Pioneer Town, which is, if you don't know what Pioneer Town is, it was a place built in the 40s, and it was also around for the 50s. They filmed a lot of old westerns there, so they still is kind of like this old set piece area. Right. It's really cool how they have, you know, things that you would typically see in a western movie, you know, very condensed. Um, but as it explained there, it was, you know, the... Filmmakers found this to be an easier area to bring set film crews out to to actually record those uh, old old time westerns. Yeah, it was brought uh, together by in part by uh, a couple of uh, western film stars, including Roy Rogers. For one, was right. part of the one that backed it. And so we went there, checked that out. Went to Joshua Tree National Monument. Took a long drive through <laughs> we Joshua. Did the whole Tree. thing. That is a big <laughs> park. We drove through that. Uh, then we went back and uh, we went and saw uh, Juliana Hatfield, who, who played back at Pioneer Town that night. Uh, she's famous from doing some stuff in the 90s. She's got her own. But the big thing, the reason we were there is because Michelle's nephew is playing guitar on their tour right now. Yeah, um, Mike, he's amazing. He's always been really phenomenal when it comes to music and it's so exciting to be able to see him live on stage in this concert so yeah. I'm so proud of him so we had a great time last night uh, checking that out as i said we just got back today it was a late night last night so yeah. we were a little worn out uh, please bear <laughs> with us but we had a fantastic time so but but thank you for joining us today in the future you can find us most everywhere you get podcasts over the very best place to find us is on our own website hyperionadventurespodcast.com and while you're there why don't you just take a second to sign up for the newsletter yes uh, first of all thank you to everybody who signed up so far this has been fun and we really want to encourage uh, the rest of you to sign up because it is a fun way to be able to share some things outside of the podcast with you and have that other level of communication and connection yeah a really great way for you to find out what we have coming up what's going on with uh, the Hyperion Adventures podcast, and if anything coming up in the future that you might want to find out about, whether it's a meetup, giveaway, we've got some stuff planned that we're eventually going to uh, break out of you. The first place you'll find it is right there on the newsletter. However, you can also find out information about us and just have some fun with us on social media, on Twitter, at Hyperion Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, at Hyperion Adventures Podcast. If you ever want to contact us for any reason, of course you can DM us on any of those social media sites, but you can also email us at HyperionAdventuresPodcast at gmail.com. Exactly. We love to hear from all of you. And one way that we really appreciate hearing from people is when they... If when you give a review, whether it's just the star rating or actually uh, put in a description of the review, we truly appreciate that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we really appreciate anybody who gives us any feedback on our show whatsoever. But if you do give a review, it does help other people find us. But however, the best place to find us is, is or actually uh, for others to find us is just by telling friends about them, uh, about our show, because uh, that's the easy way. Word of mouth is the easiest way to grow our show and any show that you love. Right. And we certainly appreciate it. Speaking of word of mouth, I, I, I could tell you we're on a roll here with struggling to talk, right? Well, welcome to the show. <laughs> it's week in and week out for us, especially for me, struggling to talk. No, I'm the one struggling too. So, no. uh, But we do have, if we can make our way through it, uh, we do have lots of stuff for you today, including if you're looking forward to your chance to fly the Millennium Falcon on your next trip to Walt Disney World, well, the planning has become a little bit easier for you. Uh, if you'd like to experience a little bit of galaxy, uh, a galaxy far, far away on the ocean, well, there's good news for you about that mm. as well. And if you've ever wondered what happened to Bo Peep between Toy Story 2 <laughs> and Toy Story 4, well, you're going to be able to find out very soon. But let's get to our main topic of the week. And I find this very fascinating. Coming up here this Wednesday, as a matter of fact, right. we're going up to Disneyland for a ticketed event. It's Disneyland After Dark 80s night. And yeah. We were, you know, thinking about Disney in the 80s. And for most people, it seems like kind of a dark era within Disney. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll discuss a lot, little bit about that coming up here. Uh, but, you know, Michael Eisner himself called it the... Disney, Disney decade. decade. So was it the Disney decade? Was it the dark era of Disney? We're going to discuss a lot about that. Go through what happened within the 80s, within the Disney company, within the films, the parks, etc. And you can kind of decide for yourself. So let's get started. Disney in the 80s. Was it really the Disney decade? This is the realization of Walt Disney's dream to create a permanent showcase of technology and world culture. I'm Danny Kaye, and I'm speaking to you live and wet from Epcot Center. All my life, I've been waiting for someone, and when I find her, she's, she's a fish. Nobody said love's perfect. Welcome to you. And how do you do? Everybody's waiting here at Pooh Corner. Where am I? You're a guest of the Master Control Program. Oh, great. They're going to make you play video games. Okay, no sweat. I play video games better than anybody. Hi, Master Sizers! Hi, Alex! How is everyone today? Fine! Y'all ready to mousercise? Yeah! The machine works. Do the kids know? Well, yeah, the kids know. That's great! That's not that great. Why? I shrunk the kids. Do you mean to tell me that you could have taken your hand out of that cuff at any time? No, not at any time. Only when it was funny. <laughs> Come on, Eddie, raise your sense of humor. So sit back and enjoy this sneak preview of the Hollywood we created in Florida. There's not so much a theme park as a state of mind. A Hollywood that never was and will always be. Let's in my turn. I 
So that's just a taste of some of the things that happened with Disney in the 80s. Many films, some park openings, lots of stuff happened in the 80s for Disney. Yeah. there. You know, I don't know if you want to call it like a transition year. They, they were, there were some elements of it that were transitioning in leadership and management, obviously, and things within the animation department and other types of um, entertainment. Uh, I was surprised to find out, fun fact, mm-hmm. the 80s is when they had their first Walt Disney World on Ice. Oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> I know, wow, right? <laughs> that's kind of cool. That wasn't part of my notes, so that's interesting. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, there, was a, there were a lot of firsts in the 80s. I mean, that's when they first um, also released Disney animated features on video cassettes. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you played with Mouser Size, uh, the Disney Channel cable channel came out. Right. So here's how we're going to handle today's episode is that uh, Michelle, well, a lot of the stuff that happened in the 80s really happened out in Florida on the East Coast more than anything else. And so Michelle got to experience a little more of that as far as the parks anyway. So I'm going to have her talk about the parks a little bit. I'm going to talk. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the films themselves that came out in the 80s. But before we get started with that, there was a lot, as Michelle just referenced, a lot of change within the Walt Disney Company management in the 80s, like more than virtually any other decade we've seen, large period. So I'm going to go through kind of what how the management changed throughout the 80s. And we'll start with, in 1980, Card Walker succeeded Don Tatum as the president and CEO in, in 1980. Right. Uh, he helped oversee the expansion of the Disney parks, both domestically and abroad. And he retired in 1983, but stayed on as a consultant until 1990 and was a board member in 2000, eventually became a Disney legend. Right, right. So uh, f- following him, Ron Miller, who was Walt's son-in-law, married to Diane Disney, right. uh, he took over in 1983. He pushed for more work with films and television uh, within the company itself. Uh, he launched Touchstone and the Disney Channel in 1983, even though Card Walker kind of started the things in motion for the Disney Channel. It actually launched when Ron Miller was there. Right. Uh, yeah, because yeah. I think Ron Miller, one of his focuses, he he was one of the first ones that really understood that the the tweens and the teens were going to be driving the family entertainment. So whether it was vacationing or the movies, and that's why he started, you know, connecting with like creating Touchstone and and other things because some of these, you know, kids that were, you know, in that age range might not want to go see some of the little kids kind of movies and Mm -hmm. things. Yeah, made sense. However, under his leadership, the Walt Disney Company, well, it was nearly taken over. There were some corporate raiders that came in, bought up stock, tried to kind of take the company and split it up for parts at one point. Uh, Many shareholders were criticizing his leadership. Roy E. Disney, who is Roy O. Disney's son, Mm -hmm. so uh, Walt's nephew, uh, along with a couple other key shareholders, pushed him out of the job, actually. Actually, uh, Roy kind of resigned from the board, and that kind of put things in motion for this to happen. Uh, And then, uh, so Roy, with these other shareholders, decided to bring in a trio of non-Disney film executives to kind of fill the void. Michael Eisner uh, became the CEO. He came from Paramount Pictures. He was also had a history in television as well. Uh, Frank Wells became the president and COO. He came over from Warner Brothers and, and took over that role. And uh, the one thing they liked about it, and by the way, um, check out, and we've said this many times, 
Go watch Waking Sleeping Beauty on Disney+. Plus. It's a documentary right. about this kind of era uh, within Disney and the Disney animation renaissance and everything. It's a brilliant documentary. It really uh, captures this period very well. And so a lot of the stuff we're going to reference, uh, if you want to look at it and see how it played out, uh, it's really well done on that documentary. Exactly. And what really made that documentary interesting was it actually had the people involved in there. So it wasn't, you know, just somebody kind of like running through corporate history. It was the people who lived that history describing things as, you know, from showing some things that were happening back in the 80s and then describing, you know, more in present time how things developed because mm-hmm. of that. Exactly. So uh, one thing that uh, Roy E. Disney said about Michael Eisner and Frank Wells is that he felt they kind he kind they kind of reminded him of his father and his uncle, right. Walt and Roy O, uh, as far as their kind of roles within the company. One was kind of more the the face of the company, or as the other right. one was kind of actually guiding things behind the scenes, had gave the, the, the team direction, essentially, you know, did things financially to right. make sure things were stabilized. So the other part of that trio was Jeffrey Katzenberg, who you probably know now. He was brought in as the chairman of Walt Disney Studios. And Michael Eisner would hold the job uh, for the rest of the eight. 80s and the 90s. He would finally retire in 2005. Under Eisner, Wells, and Katzenberg, the live-action film studios flourished. I mean, they took off at that point. Uh, He also, of course, as I was just talking about, became the face of Disney, showing up regularly on The Wonderful World of Disney, the Disney movie of the week. I'm trying to remember what the name of it was, but the Disney movie of the week. Uh, And just kind of like Walt had back in the days of the original Disneyland television series, followed by The Wonderful World of Color, okay? Right. Michael Eisner kind of filled that void that they were missing for a while. Uh, The parks grew and flourished under Eisner. A lot of this you can also see in the Imagineering story that they were concerned with Eisner coming in, but he... He put a lot of money in there, put a lot of money behind the Imagineers and helping them build these parks. Uh, The animation department, however, they had their struggles at first, so much so that they were forced out of the animation building at the Walt Disney Studios lot. It still stands as the animation building, but they were not in there. And they're they're still not in there anymore uh, because of the fact that they were struggling and they just wasn't bringing in the money that Disney Animation had in the past. Uh, So, you know, their existence actually seemed in trouble. Like, we may not have Walt Disney Animation. Uh, It it really appeared that that could be the case. Right. And and a lot of that was brought on, too, by the departure of um, Bluth. Right. Well, I'll talk about that okay. a little bit Sorry. more. Spoiler. That's okay. That's okay. We will talk a little <laughs> bit about that uh, coming up. And uh, finally, late in the decade, we saw that all change and the Disney animation renaissance began. But before we get to the mil- the movies, I was talking a little bit about how much that was done within the parks, especially on the East Coast. But there was stuff done abroad. There was stuff done, of course, at the Disneyland Resort as well in the 80s. And since Michelle experienced a lot of the Walt Disney World stuff where a lot of that happened, I thought that she'd be better to break that down. So Michelle, why don't you tell us a little bit about Disney in the parks and the expansion that happened within the 80s. Right. Well, well, one of the obviously biggest thing that happened was the opening of Epcot Center. And that opened on October 1st in 1982. Um, originally, when it first opened, it had nine country pavilions. Uh, so Norway and Mexico were added later on in the 80s. Um, as part of the opening day ceremony, they had, you know, dancers and bands like, you know, what they they typically do when they have a new opening at, at a park or, you know, uh, 
any kind of big event like that. Um, the Sherman brothers were brought in to, to write a song. Uh, it was entitled uh, The World Showcase March. So it was great bringing that tradition of the Sherman brothers into that. Um, and during a finale, they had the, they set out blo- uh, doves and balloons. Um, so, you know, a lot of big fanfare. They had uh, representatives from all over the country, all the countries that were there, and they still do that. Uh, but what was really nice and unique, and I remember hearing about this uh, when it happened, is that they had somebody empty water into the Parks Fountain, mm-hmm. the Fountain of, of Nation, nations, right. from each of those countries that were represented in the pavilion. So, yeah. you know, that, w- that was kind of a really great way to initiate it. And I thought that was a, a fun way. Yeah. Pouring one out for the now just dear, least recently <laughs> departed Fountain <laughs> right. of Nations. It Ex- left us not that long ago. So. Exactly. Um, so anyways, from a personal perspective, I do remember going uh, not opening day, but early on. And I, I know that there were a lot of mixed reviews. I think people really, all they had before was Disneyland and Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom. And so that was, I think people thought it was just going to be more of that or an extension of that maybe. But it was so different, as we all know. It was really different. And so there was a lot of um, challenges because people were criticizing that, for example, that they didn't have the characters. Now, I remember some characters that they did have there, and I'm showing Tom a picture right now. They were like these really tall, kind of, the best way I can describe it is, you know, in a baseball game when they have, you know, like the presidents running for a, oh, yeah. <laughs> around right. the, you know, around the bases right. or whatever for a race. They were that. They were these really tall, um, but they were uh to represent the different countries that were there, you know, so children of those countries. And they would go around and you could get pictures with them. But again, I, th- I think with what people's expectations were is that where's Mickey and Minnie, Donald and Goofy and Pluto? So I think that was a rocky start. I didn't look for them. You know, I was just mesmerized by the entire uniqueness of this. And, you know, I think... As a company, they were looking to make it be kind of like a World's Fair. And I thought that they hit the mark on that. Mm-hmm. Although I've never been to a World's Fair. So I guess I, I'm not a... From what you understand, from, a World's yeah, Fair. From, yeah, I, I can't speak from that, from experience in that. But just from, yeah, things that I've seen about World's Fairs and everything. You know, and have that ability to be in a place that you could walk up to somebody who was actually from the nation where their pavilion was and you know, just gain some of that cultural experience with them. It was really wonderful, you know. Um, so I, I, you know, really just remember fondness of going, you know, like with my parents and my siblings um, and just totally falling in love with it from the start. Now, what were some of your favorite attractions that were there early in Epcot's, you know, because a lot of these do not exist anymore. Most right. Most were gone. So what were some of your favorites that you used to go uh, and check out there? And you know, yeah. You kind of miss that they're gone. Now. Right, right. And some, you know, are, have changed. They might still be there. You know, obviously Spaceship Earth mm-hmm. has had some, ren- you know, renovations. Several times over the several years. Several times. Yeah. You know, I think the majority of it has remained the same. I think this new expansion that they're doing, you know, ge- gearing up for is going to be the biggest expansion for Spaceship Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, the World of Energy. Uh, at that time, it was before Ellen DeGeneres and Bill <laughs> Nye, the science guy, were in there. But the rest of it was pretty much 
the same in terms of what the actual ride was. Um, you know, but it was really unique that it was a new technology. I mean, it was covered with 80,000 uh, solar cells, or I know they have a better name for that. But anyways, um, they're photovoltaic huh. solar cells. Uh, works for me. Right. And they partially powered that the ve- the ride vehicle. So, um, you know, but in terms of going through and seeing the uh, audio animatronic dinosaurs and things, that that was still there as well. So I think when they upgraded that later on, it, they just, you know, bringing in um, the blend of Ellen and, and Bill Nye, which was great. And I think it, it added a lot and refreshed that ride. But that was a fun ride. It was so unique and so different. And, you know, being inside those vehicles and in those, you know, dinosaurs all around you. It was, it was impressive, you know. Um, World of Motion, uh, sponsored by General Motors, was there from the beginning. Um, it, it did change to become Test Track, you know, but at, at the time it was World of Motion and it had these, uh, they called it Omni Mover Vehicles. And they had audio animatronic figures that were really just showing the history of transportation, you know, from the wheel on up to, you know, modern day cars. Uh, Well, to me, I remember about this, especially I had to refresh my memory about it. What was cool is the ride kind of started outside and circled into the building. So that was kind of kind of fun. I feel like uh, Radio Springs Racers do now. They start outside, then you move inside, then you go back outside. Or? Um, yeah, it was it was kind of. And I'm trying to see if I have a picture here. I didn't keep capture. Um, it the the it was outside. So the top of the building looked like kind of like a wheel. Okay. And so the ride would start. You would enter your vehicles, and they would on the outside start climbing up to that wheel and the rest of the ride was in the wheel um so you got great views of epcot it was mm. kind of like the monorail views i should say okay. com- comparable to that sure. so um but yeah so i mean i guess i would um kind of compare it to spaceship earth where you're looking through you know how something progresses and in this case it was transportation okay so interesting um yeah and then um Horizons, though, that didn't open right away. That was a year later. Okay. So on October 1st of uh, 1983, that opened. Um, and that w- was one of my favorite, mm. all-time favorites um, as well. And that was, you know, it, it was just really a fun uh, experience in a ride. So, you know, you got to explore different options of living in the 21st century, because that's the whole concept. It was kind of like trying to look at the future, you know, so they had like a robotic um, housekeeper and uh, a robotic chef, mm-hmm. and they had it in funny, cute scenes and things like that. Um, to me, uh, you know, some of the highlights of it too was going through and you, it was one of the first rides that I can remember where you would actually have scent involved. So they had the smells of orange as they showed uh, this, I guess what you'd call like a more efficient type of farming orange groves Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, But to me, the best part was at the end where the the people in the car could pick in unison, one location, but they had a choice of destination. Uh, so they could either go to the desert, which was called uh, Mesa Verde, space, which was Omega Centauri, and or the sea, which was Sea Castle Resort. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
So that was always fun. Um, and I just remember more like with my dad and I, we were usually the ones that were in control. Yeah. Amazing. That's I shocking. know, right? <laughs> and we would usually get the rest of the family. You're going where we're going to pick. <laughs> but it was just fun to have that ability. And then you had a different, you know, slightly different experience at the end in Very terms cool. of where you, you picked. So those were really, really great. Um, the land. Yeah, pavilion still had the it. The ride was pretty much the same, although it was called "Listen to the Land," mm. and um, rather than living with the land, right? Rather than living with the land, so um, it had a different feel to it, somewhat in terms of uh, it. Sh- the, it was funny because, and I don't know if this is politically correct to say, but the pictures that you see highlighted before you're going into where all the hydroponics and the different types of plants are um it showed farming and at that time it was talking about oh this is how different farming techniques were used and now it's kind of like oh we found those weren't the best ways to (laughs) farm and now we're listening to the land (laughs) living with the land um but anyway so um but where soaring was located by the way you scared me when you're saying i don't know if this is politically correct i'm like oh no where's our (laughs) podcast going It's just it was same pictures, different focus. Um, but what was really cute is where soaring is located was Kitchen Cabaret, Cabaret being with a K. And that had audio animatronics as well. And they were like food based characters. And they were it was one of those first attractions that were like kind of focusing on healthy eating, mm-hmm. you know, which was really kind of cool in a very, you know, childlike entertaining kind of way but loved bonnie appetit who was the host and you know she would introduce different acts and musical reviews and that is attraction where the infamous song veggie veggie fruit fruit came in (laughs) which was uh actually performed by colander combo and the fiesta fruit wow i know i know so um it's one of those songs that can really get stuck in your head (laughs) but in terms of the parks in epcot that was you know uh, from a personal perspective it just has a lot of fond memories especially with family you know and i think of that with family and then later on with us and our family Mm -hmm. and you know just adoring it and yes things have changed things have evolved um keeping a freshness to it that makes you want to go back yeah i I love epcot Uh, the way it is now uh, i didn't get to experience it like you did back in the 80s but uh, i do love epcot now well i will love epcot i know i still love Epcot now even though it's it's in a period of change and a lot of construction i still love epcot yeah you know just fine on the West Coast, though, there was something in the 80s that I think you might be able to relate to and talk about. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming you're talking about the opening of Star Tours, correct? Well, that was going to be my next one. But yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. So Star Tours opened in 1987 on the West Coast. Uh, and uh, to well, a huge event, the fact that they were able to get together with George Lucas and and bring a Star Wars attraction actually into the land. And the original one, if you if you never went on the original Star Tours. Uh, it wasn't like what it is now where you, you know, it changes every time you go. It was the same trip everywhere right. you went. It was, you were trying to get to Endor and uh, things always went wrong, you know, and uh, good old Captain Rex would always say, you know, I'll do better next time, but he never really did. But Which is uh, why he's a DJ now. But it was, I mean, you got 
to do the trench run at the Death Star. There was all sorts. It was just great to be within Star Wars. It was, you know, now we're, we can really almost be within Star Wars with right. Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. But that was the first taste of it back in the 80s. Exactly. And that was uh, before it was 3D, I believe, right? Oh, yeah. It wasn't yeah. 3D at that yeah. uh, to begin with. But uh, the other thing that was actually, it, w- it didn't open in the 80s, but it was still in existence uh, in the 80s is America Sings. Oh, yeah. I loved America Sings. That's, I miss America Sings. Yeah. Uh, it was located where Star Wars uh, Launch Bay is now. Right. And so what it did was when they moved the Carousel of Progress, which originated, of course, at the World's Fair, but also right. was at Disneyland to begin with, they decided to move it out to uh, the Magic Kingdom at Walt right. Disney World. Uh, so they needed to kind of fill that void. And so they had uh, America Sings, which kind of followed the same process. You would go from scene to scene to scene, and it would be kind of this Americana singing these uh, classic, wonderful American songs. Uh, a lot of the characters that were in it, you can now see on uh, Splash Mountain because right. they, they once they got rid of America Sings, they they kind of repurposed the singing and dancing geese and, and foxes and all that stuff. And so now if you're going through uh, Splash Mountain, a lot of those characters originally came from America Sings, but it was one of my favorite attractions. One, because just like Carousel Progress, you can you could have pretty much walked on whenever you want. It was nice and relaxing. You got to sit there for about 20 minutes right. and just kind of watch these scenes go, and it just was fun. So, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was also interesting that it had the Master of Ceremonies was um, Sam, mm-hmm. the bald eagle, mm-hmm. who at that time was voiced by Burl Ives. But yeah, that was pretty interesting that that was there. I, In looking at the history of that and seeing how they did keep the original shell of um, the Carousel of Progress there, which I didn't realize. Was, yeah, I mean, it's still was, the shell is still there, but now it's just used as the launch pad. So it's just right, yeah. launch pad. Launch, launch bay. bay. Sorry, I knew that was wrong as soon as I said it. Uh, <laughs> but it's you know, so you can still go in there and look at, but it doesn't move anymore or anything. But uh, the the actual shell of what was originally the Carousel Progress, then America Sings, right. still exists. Um, so the last little piece that just you know more to announce at, at, in the eighties in terms of park news was that was. Tokyo Disneyland opening was in that decade. It was in 1983, and that opened in Japan. Um, and that was really, you know, the first time internationally that Disney opened, you know, a park. And they really did recognize that the Japanese culture had a great love for all things Disney. And so, you know, they really wanted to assimilate what Disneyland and, or, and the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World was uh, in their country, and they truly kind of did a lot of mimicking, so it was kind of cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. yeah, finally, Disney expanding outside of the U.S., giving more people a chance to experience it in different ways. And uh, still, it's on my bucket list of things that we need to do at some point. Exactly, is get out there. Want all the Asian parks, uh, but yeah, I, 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 from what I understand about. Uh, uh, Tokyo Disneyland Tokyo is is it, it's got it's amazing and that, right. you know, it's one of the first ones you should definitely go check out right and so there was one other park that opened up in the 80s it was the late 80s so actually 1989 and that was Disney MGM Studios mm, yes and you know that it had a totally different focus and flavor than where we see it now than where we've seen it actually quite a while a time now you know it was kind of like a nod to Hollywood at the time as it, in the title it was Disney MGM Studios they did have a, a you know a partnership 
with Disney MGM. You know, we had the Chinese theater there mm-hmm. and, and they, there. right. And they, you know, they really did try to embrace that Hollywood feel. They had, you know, uh, actors come in and do handprints and, you know, put them out there at the beginning. I remember that they used to have a daily parade with some kind of a star, you know, uh, obviously on the weekends, it was usually somebody a lot more famous than during the week, but it was fun. And they would ride in a motorcade, um, you know, kind of as the MC for that, that parade for that day, you know, and, and just totally different. It was all about the movies and it was all, you know, trying to show you like backlot and they had the backlot tour and, um, you could do that, which is similar to if you've ever gone to, universal in the concept similar it wasn't as high tech as that but you know they did have some scenes and things so um it was interesting to see that park. I mean, as with some parks, that was one that when it opened was kind of like a half a day event kind of thing. Um, but it was still really a lot of fun. And I, you know, um, I do, as a lot of people do miss some of the things that aren't there anymore, you know, pouring one out for the great movie ride. Right. I was just gonna say that's, you know, the, the main one, obviously, but, um, it was interesting. I mean, it was funny, uh, again, from a personal perspective, you know, that they did some, filming there but not that much you know so like I think the Golden Girls houses were there and so that was for the opening scenes they would show that but I remember seeing sets there and thinking well these are recreations of the set if if one really wanted to see sets then yes Universal in the West Coast would be the place to go. Right, or the Disney Studios on the West Coast. Right, right. Yeah. So. Um, so I think that was one of the reasons why they, or one of the many reasons why they probably changed it over right. and got away from that is that, you know, look, we wanted it to kind of be the studios, uh, thinking that it was going to be this place where we could actually film things, and they realized it wasn't really functional to film things right. there very often, and right. a lot of it was just recreations, as is a lot of actually universal on the East Coast, you know, as opposed to universal on the West Coast, which right. is... If you go to Universal Studios Hollywood, it is actually still a working lot. I right. mean, not that they don't film things in Orlando, they do, but not anywhere near compared to what they do at the the actual Universal lot right. in Hollywood. Right. So. I mean, they did have a they they did have an animation studio there that did work on pieces of different animation films, um, but not exclusively. Right. So, cool. Yeah. Cool. cool park stuff. Cool park stuff. I could go on and on, but there's lots more information. Yeah, well, we'll the see 80s. if there's anything else you want to touch on before we wrap this this section up. But right. so that's cool. Lots of like I said, uh, Disney expanded the parks like no other in the '80s. I mean, they really, you know, we just talked about it. You know, big moves of opening up some huge attractions within Disneyland itself. I think Big Thunder Mountain opened in the '80s as mm-hmm. well over at uh, Disneyland and Walt Disney World for that matter. Uh, but also, I mean, the, the look at the expansion outside of the U.S. Two big new parks within the Walt Disney World. Right. Uh, it was just a huge time for expansion within Disney parks themselves, making Disney World actually a Disney World and not just another expansion of Disneyland. Right, it's not exactly. Magic Kingdom versus Disneyland itself. Uh, so really, really cool stuff. Now, as far as movies in the 80s, uh, you, you know, you may not, if you don't think about it really hard, you may not really think of a lot of movies that came out from Disney in the 80s, but there were a lot of great movies right. that came out in the 80s, mostly that were live action. But I want to start, however, within animation, because this was a key time in Disney animation in mm-hmm. the 80s, as we talked about. Right. You, know, you can find out more about it 
in that uh, mini in that uh, documentary, Waking Sleeping Beauty. It uh, started off in 1981 with the release of Fox and the Hound, which was delayed uh, for at least six months. I can't remember exactly the time period, but uh, you know. And it ended up being a film that we actually like very much. It's right. a really good film, but it's really a tough film to watch. It's, yes. it's it'll, it'll affect you emotionally because it's really brutal. But the reason why this movie struggled is because midway through its development, Don Bluth, who was an animator at the Disney Walt Disney Studios, Walt Disney Company at the time, uh, was kind of getting frustrated with all the things that he was trying to run by the, the people up above him right. at Disney and finally just had enough and picked up and decided to start his own animation company. And he, by the way, took about half the animators they had right. at Disney with him, which sent Disney animation spiraling at the time. Right. I mean, th- there was also already at that same time, that's where we're, they were seeing the, um, the attention to the animation studio had been starting to drop off. And so the animators were feeling, you know, very much like stepchildren, it seemed like. And so it did seem that the culture was ready for something like this to happen. Right. So they were struggling. And then they released in 1985, The Black Cauldron, which was a really dark for Disney just dark and kind of scary, almost too scary for a lot of kids to go out and see. Really difficult movie. I was actually, you know, after knowing we were doing this, I put it on Disney Plus the other day, and it's just like, <laughs> oof, you know, that's really, I, I don't think, I, I, I must have seen it way back when, but I haven't seen it in a good, you know, 30, 40 years at least. And right. just watching it, I was like, ouch, that was tough. And not, I mean, and it struggled at the box office. It didn't make, its money back. As a matter of fact, it only made about half the money back that it originally put in to, to get this together. And it was delayed for a long time trying to put this film together because they just couldn't get it right. It even lost to, of all movies at the box office, the Care Bears <laughs> right. movie. Okay? So that just tells you where Disney animation was at that point. They And then, as I talked about earlier, this was around the point that they pushed them out of the Disney animation building on the Walt Disney Studios lot needing that for some of their live action films they can which was being were really successful as I'll talk about in a little bit at that point they moved them over to Glendale to basically a bunch of trailers almost right. and there they kind of had to, to go and it really looked like Disney animation could be in trouble right at that point. right yeah um, they like I said they they were really being kind of pushed aside as a stepchild they weren't being seen as you know having a future to really bring in an established big amount of money um, they actually started doing cartoons for television which hadn't been done in quite a while with the Disney company so again the animation department just seemed like they were um, they they weren't seeing the gold that they thought they had in the past. Mm-hmm, exactly. So uh, once they moved there, they did release some movies, but they had some struggles getting these out too. The Great Mouse Detective, which there was a big internal fight for that because they wanted it to be called the Basil of Baker Street, which was kind of right. more of, along the lines of what it was. And but uh, the marketing company at Disney decided that's just it's no one will understand what right. that means. So they retitled it the great mouse detective and not the animators. were not really <laughs> happy with that. Uh, but you know, one good thing about that is that movie started to 
you could see some possibilities of Disney animation turning around with that. It started to get a little bit better. Right. It just wasn't marketed very well, and that's where it struggled a little bit. Then came out Oliver and Company in 1988, which had great music. Billy Joel uh, behind this. Um, right. Again, story not the best story, you know, but uh, you know, obvious, obviously, it, it it didn't quite make it. But you could see things coming back, and I'm going to get because animation starts to grow from there. I'm going to get back to that in a moment, but before we go there, I want to go while animation was struggling to where the live action, which was flourishing at the time under both the Walt Disney Studios label and the Touchstone label. Uh, In 1982, Tron came out and it, it was groundbreaking with the use of its visual effects, the use of computers within right. it. Uh, it was something that people had never seen before. It, it was fascinating right. film in 1982. <clears throat> and excuse me, and that's Ron Miller had saw the um, the explosion of people loving Star Wars and thought, okay, this company has to kind of respond to that, and what can we attach to? And and this was kind of the start of that. Mm -hmm. We also saw that uh, Disney started to tie themselves to big stars in many of these movies. In 1984, Splash came out, which, by the way, I saw it on TV, I don't know, maybe two, three months ago, and I hadn't seen it in a long time. Still a great movie. I love Splash. Splash is a brilliant movie. Tom Hanks, who really was kind of, up and coming at the time, right. really hadn't done much, but he's brilliant in that. Daryl Hannah, John Candy is great. Eugene Levy oh, uh, yeah. is in that film as well. Uh, really great. Uh, and uh, they went on from there. To the, how about The Color of Money in 1986 yes. with uh, Paul Newman and Tom Cruise? Right, You've heard right. of Tom Cruise. Uh, <laughs> then we had the Bette Midler era, kind of was in the middle of the 80s, yes. where they just these slew of Bette Midler uh, kind of comedy films came out, including Down and Out in Beverly Hills in 1986. With Which, Bette- yeah, that was the first R-rated movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Disney, for Disney. Right? Yeah. A touchstone technically, but yeah, Disney uh, with Bette Midler, Nick Nolte and Richard Dreyfuss were in that uh, Ruthless People also came out in 1986, uh, Bette with uh, Danny DeVito in right. that one. Outrageous Fortune came out in 1987, Bette with Shelley Long oh, in yeah. that one. And in 1988, Big Business with uh, Bette Midler with Lily Tomlin in that one. So uh, really a run of kind of hits from Bette Midler uh, with Touchstone Films there in the middle of the 80s. You left out beaches. Yeah, well. (laughs) You know, with beaches, I I can't get too much into beaches. Even though you are the wind beneath my wings, I can't get into that too much. But yes, beaches was also a part of that. It was a little different than I was mostly talking about the comedies. Beaches are a little more serious. There wasn't comedy within beaches, but... Um, you know, what I'm talking about. also uh, three men and a baby came out in 1987 with Tom right. Selleck, Ted Danson, Steve Gutenberg, uh, honey, I shrunk the kids with Rick Moranis right. in 1989. And then an interesting thing happened in, uh, in also in 1989 with uh, who framed Roger rabbit. Mm-hmm. Actually it was 1988, excuse me, who framed Roger rabbit, which was an amazing combination of live action and animation. And, you know, it also, it, it was such a crossover event because it brought in, animated characters from other studios like Warner Brothers and such into this. It was just this amazing landmark film. And that's when we started to see also more of the animation, even though it was live action film, animation starting to get a foothold. Right. And getting ready to really explode. Yeah. So let's get to that. Now we'll get to the animation rebirth, 1989. Uh, And actually the years, of course, leading right up to that. Uh, Disney... You know, uh, Katzenberg, Roy E. Disney, uh, Michael Eisner, Frank Wells 
were brilliant and decided to bring in Howard Ashman and Alan Menken from Broadway right. for doing, after they did that Little Shop of Horrors, which is a huge hit. Right. Okay. Uh, and they bring him in and they put together a little film that you may have heard of called The Little Mermaid in 1989. Right. Okay. Amazing. They, smash hit. They brought back the classic Broadway musical back into Disney films, which has right. been kind of lacking for several years. And uh, their genius behind that led to an unprecedented run for Disney animation in the 90s. It all started with Little Mermaid right. and then moved on into the 90s with the Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, etc., etc., etc. Revived Disney animation and it all started with them making this move at the end of the 80s to bring these two in and get back to what Disney was animation-wide. These, and not that they have to all be musicals, but really, that's what Disney's kind of known for. Right. right. Well, in, in having a story that, that really brings in the heart, mm -hmm. you know, and I do think having uh, that creative team from Broadway who knew how Broadway builds a story and builds with the music how you get to feel with these characters so, so impassionately. And that's what they brought to this film. Yeah. And they brought, yeah, big time. Uh, again, go watch Waking Sleeping Beauty and watch uh, Howard Ashman work with Jody Benson on singing yes. as Ariel's Part of Our World. The fact that Part of Our World, uh, or excuse me, Part of Your World, it's like Part of Our World, hashtag, <laughs> we love you, Part of Our World podcast, Part of Your World, uh, Keenan and Rachel, shout out to you, yes. uh, Part of Your World almost didn't make the film, you know, and right. Howard had to push for that move right. for that song to be and it's such a key song within the film it's amazing to think that it wasn't almost in there right right that Katzenberg was the one that was really kind of thinking it, it wasn't necessary but it was it really is interesting how um you know they described why they put that song there mm -hmm. that you know on Broadway generally early in the in the story the like around by the third song the main character sings what their desires are, what their wants are. And right. so they it's, captured that perfectly in that song. And that's really what made it, you know, you understand where what was driving Ariel. So much so. So, uh, yeah, it, just a, a great, amazing period. The renaissance of Disney animation, you know, it, it it's still flourishing today. It went through another dip for a little while, but it all started to come back when it looked like it was at death's door for a little while right. there. Uh, thanks to... Um, in many ways, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken and what they were able to accomplish there at the end of the decade. So right. that's it, what I have for Disney films. Do you have any other notes you want to bring in as far as the 80s? Um, well, first of all, in terms of Disney films, just a, a funny little thing about Touchstone films. And I remember my brother and I were joking about this because he worked at Disney and he said, Touchstone films is the entity that Disney wants you to know that they own, but they don't want right. you to know that they own right. <laughs> because they want you to know because they produce really quality films. They don't want you to know because it is more of these more related to our, Mostly our, they wanted their shareholders to know, look, touch right. is part of our show. You remember, <laughs> don't forget that. Um, some other highlights of the, the eighties that, you know, from a personal perspective, um, one getting, the the movies on videos mm -hmm. you know and eventually even the sing-alongs that i remember 
doing that with my family and things like that. That was uh, we had a lot of fun with the that. Sorry, when they did the vault too, where you like, oh, yes. every f- you know, so long, Bambi is ready for you. It's all <laughs> coming out of the vault this year. Get it while you can. Exactly. Um, and the other big thing was the Disney Channel, and um, I don't know if we got that immediately, like. Well, also, it was, it was originally paid. you had to pay for it. It was more, I can tell you now, back then, it was double the price of what Disney Plus is now. Um, and that's in the 80s. Right, okay? in the 80s. Uh, and I and I just totally remembered loving it because it had, it, you know, at the time, it was so unique that it had, it brought back, you know, some of the old things, like talk about the vault, you know, after you know midnight it would a lot of times play some really old movies like whether it be zorro or um some of the original mickey mouse the Mouseketeers from the 50s and things so being able to see some of that history was was really fun and then they had some fun shows i mean you played mouser size which was mm-hmm. really a lot of fun um, welcome to Pooh Corner. Welcome which is, to Pooh uh, which Corner, there, yeah. which is one of Scott's favorite little songs, by the way, <laughs> that version. Um, the other thing, too, though, was that was touching was that they did have the classic cartoons. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, the very first show, do you know what the very first show on the Disney Channel? Should I guess Steamboat Willie or? No, it was actually a, a, a new original show. Oh, no, I don't know then. So it's called Good Morning Mickey. Oh, okay. And has a really cute, catchy tune at the beginning, and, and it um, shows, you know, some of the, you know, Fab Four playing around, and then they would, you know, show some cartoons, you know, some of the early cartoons. And it was just fun, again, seeing that history. And See, I, th- you know. I never, uh, until until the Disney Channel became part of Basic Cable, I never uh, could watch Disney Channel. We did not pay uh, for it, unfortunately, yeah. because yeah. I think I missed out on a lot. And it's, it was. It's too bad. Yeah. It was a lot of cute things. Um, and it, you know, obviously Disney Channel still exists, uh, but definitely those, you know, early shows. Shoot, why don't they have Mouser Size anymore? Yeah, Come on. That's a good question. <laughs> this is a really good question. Disney Plus. Why, why, why are they, again, Disney Plus, why isn't old versions of Master Size coming on? Yeah, <laughs> right? Why don't you have those? Why don't you get those out of the vault? So. Exactly. So, um, you know, I think those are the highlights. Uh, again, uh, you know, as with... By the way, Master Size, so 80s. When you, if you oh, go I know. back and go on YouTube, <laughs> and look at it is so it's 80s. Hilarious. It's great. I love it. It is hilarious. It's fun. It's fun. Um, another one of those catchy songs. But, yeah, uh, you know... Like most people, the things with Disney that mean the most are things that you've cherished with, you know, family or friends. And that was a big decade for a lot of changes, um, but that I got to experience them with family and friends, you know, whether whether it was the parks, you know, especially Epcot being so uniquely dynamic and um, and of course, Disney MGM Studios as well. Um, But I think Epcot had less to be comparable to than a you know, a uh, movie studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like you said, with the, with the, all these great films, you know, and being able to share that, you know, going to the movies with my brothers and stuff and see these things. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. So. It's very cool. Yeah. Cool stuff in the eighties. Cool so, stuff. In yeah. The 80s. Looking forward to the fun evening that's right. coming up on Wednesday. Right. They have some really cool things that are happening on yeah. that. 
We're gonna we'll, we'll we're gonna share all about that next week on the show for sure. Our experience out there, and if you're going out to Disneyland after dark '80s night, uh, look for us out there. We're we're gonna have a lot of fun. It should be a, a blast. The Disneyland after dark things are always great, but yeah, they actually are gonna have monster size going on. Nice. You gonna have your leg warmers on? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. but yeah, that's gonna be one of their photo ops. Um, but they're, they, you know, they're gonna have a lot of fun with the with the music, uh, special fireworks to the max. To the max. Yes, and you know some interesting little food to you know make you remember the eighties. <laughs> For sure. I hope or we, live the eighties. We hope you remember the eighties through our discussion of all the things that happened with Disney in the eighties. Or if you weren't alive or you didn't experience them, if we kind of shared that with you here. But you know the interesting thing is, so Michael Eisner did called this the reason why we we questioned was it really the disney decade right well let's look back at it now most people will if you think about disney in the 80s you don't think of much you think about it as kind of the dark era of the 80s but right. you know there were successes with both the live action film th- throughout the 80s and the renaissance of disney animation in the later part right. of the year we just talked about that led to many of the films that we know know and love as classics uh, don't forget like you just talked about the birth of disney channel right. um, and of course you know the a very much expansion of the parks within the east coast while disney world right. some great wonderful attractions at disneyland the expansion abroad into tokyo disneyland so when you first brought it up to me as saying that Michael Eisner called it the Disney decade, I'm like, really? Is right. it? But when you look back at all this stuff, you know, maybe Eisner was right. Maybe it was the Disney decade. Right. It really is the the decade that kind of launched. I mean, you may not look at it as a successful necessarily decade, but it kind of launched us into right. what we saw Disney in the 90s, the 2000s, right. into the present, you know what Disney has become was really turned around and kind of happened a lot right. in the 1980s. I mean, and I know that there's been a lot of issues related to Michael Eisner, especially later on and towards the end of, of his term, you know, as the head of the company. Uh, but at this initiation time, it it was amazing. And that, that team, between, especially with him and Frank Wells, and as you mentioned, Katzenberg also... Um, being brought in and really helping, uh, really having a solid team lead them. And it, there was a lot of magic going on there. You know, if you, if you did live during that time frame and you think back at some of these things, it was magical. Mm-hmm. Yes, there was, especially if you know the history, things in the dark side, you know, with animation until they re, rebirth, gave it rebirth, um, there were problems there, but a lot of magic that was delivered by that company that was enjoyed by people uh, because of that. And so it really was a magical time, I think, for that organization. Like I said, I think the decade itself, I mean, I, I think it had its holes, it had its troubles, but right. it really was the inspiration of what launched what we and we, we enjoy now as Disney. And so, I mean, right. you know, was it... Truly like the best decade of Disney? Probably not. But as far as what made Disney is what we, as you know it now, right. um, I, I think it's a pretty good argument that it, it was the Disney decade that, that, that started it all. It right. really got us, not started it all, but it really got it moving to a, a how we some know it. Some freshness to it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and even though that there were some issues with leadership, whether you're talking about Card Walker or Ron Miller, um, they still 
imparted some really wonderful things that were behind the scenes happening at this time that were enjoyed by people. I mean, Tron still is a classic that people, you know, like you were talking about, we're we're, talking about. We see pictures of the uh, Tron attraction being built every single day on Twitter. Everybody goes on the People Mover, takes a picture of the Tron coaster. See where it is now. Exactly, exactly. You know, and, you know, in getting involved with like Touchstone and, you know, that was was pre-Eisner, you know, those things were already in the works. So obviously putting uh, out a brand new park at, such as Epcot was happening way before the mm-hmm. 80s. So, you know, it, it was a nice culmination, but the magic really did get reinfused with uh, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells coming together. They, they were a solid team and, um, you know, it was interesting how they, they pulled the company, like you said, out of the depths of almost getting sold off into pieces. Yeah, I mean, it was really know. bad at one point. It looked really bad for the Walt Disney Company. Right. Not just right. the animation, but for the Walt Disney Company itself at one point. Yeah. It was really yeah. looking bad. So, so. so anyway, uh, that's the way we think of the 80s Disney. I, I was surprised when I was looking back at it uh, to see how much came out of it, uh, how much it is what we is today. I would like to know from you out there, how do you remember Disney in the 80s? What were your favorite attractions to go to? Was it a dark period for you or was it one of the bright spots for you? Right. Were you a Disney Channel child? Did you love Disney Channel every yes. week? Uh, getting to tune into that. Uh, did you get to visit Epcot early in its, in its existence? We'd love to know all about it. Contact us. We'll share stories about it on upcoming episodes. Yeah. So what was your favorite thing from the 80s? Wow. Uh, my favorite thing from the 80s, because I went through, you know, in 80s, it was Star Tours. Uh, through right. the early, through the mid 80s, I wasn't really as wrapped up in Disney for, at one point. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of got more into it at the end of right. the decade again. Star Tours showed up and I was, I've been a Star, Tour, Star Wars fan for, well, a decade from, you know, right. uh, you know at that point. Uh, and so that was just exciting to be able to live in, in the Star Wars world universe and you know the films weren't coming out anymore we didn't have right. uh te- television series animated series anything star so it was just kind of neat to see something else and put us back into that right. star wars universe so you know that's probably my favorite thing yeah and it was an important part i mean it was the first time lucas films ever you know made that connection with the disney company and trusted them with their characters and you know, started that amazing relationship that look at where we're at today. We now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that leads us right into our Disney stories of the week. Because if you're looking forward to piloting the Millennium Falcon on your next trip to the Walt Disney World Resort, you now have an easier way to plan it ahead of time. So this is straight from the Disney Parks blog. Attention, Star Wars fans. You can now reserve access to fly the, quote, Fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy, end quote, <laughs> at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Fast Pass Plus reservations for Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Runs, uh, Smuggler's Run have just become available using the My Disney Experience app for those of you planning to visit on or after February 19th. So we kind of thought that this might happen at some point. Right. There's always been at the queue a, a spot where they could do Fast Pass uh, scanning. And uh, finally, it looks like, well, you know, we're going to go ahead and do this. So if you're, in, if you're planning on going out there and you want to do uh, the Millennium Falcon Smugglers Run, go ahead and get on there and reserve that along with your other Fast Passes. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think it, from my perspective, and 
Who am I to talk? But it, it's faster than I would have thought would have happened in yeah. terms of making fast passes available for them. So. Yeah, really, really cool. Yeah. Now, here's the one thing you, you may have to do a little Sophie's Choice with is that uh, Smuggler's Run is on the same tier. Now, if you don't know Fast Pass Plus, they run on different tiers. So if you book a Fast Pass for one tier that day, you cannot, uh, at least to begin with, book another Fast Pass for that same tier ride. Right. So right. like essentially an e-ticket ride for an e-ticket ride. You can't do that. So uh, on its same tier is Slinky Dog Dash. So mm. yeah, that's a tough one. Do you want to fly the Millennium Falcon or do you want to, you know, ride Slinky Dog? Right. Yeah. So you have to keep that in mind. My suggestion is do it on two different days so you can do them both. You know? Right. So do, go, yeah. do, if you have enough time to be out there for Disney's Hollywood Studios, do them two days. Do Slinky Dog Dash one day do William Falcon Smugglers run right. a different day. Or or rope drop rope drop. Or rope drop. Maybe rope drop um slinky dog and already have your fast. <laughs> so the question, pass well, for smugglers well, here's run. what I would suggest. First of all, rope drop to do Star Wars Rise of the Resistance because that's the most amazing attraction at both the Walt Disney World Resort and right. the Disneyland Resort. So rope drop for that, once you get your boarding group, then you can decide. Do you want to do Smuggler's Run and make right. it Galaxy's Edge Day? Or do you want to uh, do Slicky Dog Dash? And I guess that also will matter if you've got your Fast Pass Plus for one or the other right, one, right. which you want to do. So that would be my suggestion. Now, we haven't heard yet about anything for Fast Passes being available at the Disneyland Resort yet, but I would expect that that's coming at some point. The one thing I've seen is that uh, from going to the Walt Disney World Resort and going to the Disneyland Resort, that the wait times for Disneyland have not quite been as long at Smuggler's Run as they were at the Walt Disney World right. Resort. I wonder if that's part of what's playing into the Fast Pass mm, Plus. Also, be. the fact that Disneyland is, again, driven by annual pass holders mostly, so people can come back regularly, regularly, whereas people going to the Walt Disney World Resort are probably visiting for a week or whatever, and if they don't right. get a chance to do Smuggler's Run, um, that they may not get another chance for who knows how long. So um, I think they kind of wanted to make sure people have that as part of right. their vacation without having to wait for 90 minutes or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. So anyway, interesting stuff and uh, glad to see. And no matter what you think about, I think I like Fast Pass Plus. I know there's some people that will fight against it, that it's not good for the queues, it's not good for. I think it's it, it's good because I like having some things planned out right. ahead of time. Um, I think it's very helpful for us and for anybody who's going out on vacation. So, uh, more Star Wars news for you this time on the ocean. There's great news for you if you're a Star Wars fan and thinking about doing a Disney cruise in 2021. This straight from a Disney Cruise Line press release. Out of this world adventures return to Disney Cruise Line in 2021 with. Star Wars Day at Sea. Ooh, yes, yay. yes, uh, it's back again. This special day-long celebration is filled with unique character encounters, unforgettable live shows, and Star Wars-themed activities for the entire family. Uh, Star Wars Day at Sea takes place on seven-night Disney fantasy. The Disney fantasy ship cruises to the Caribbean from January through March. Uh, during this, you can meet some of your favorite Star Wars characters. Children will get the chance to hone their Jedi skills with Jedi training trials at the temple. They have costume celebrations, movie screenings, trivia contests. There's a ship-wide Porg adventure, which I had not heard of before, but that <laughs> wow. sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Unique Star Wars-themed food and beverages, and the night wraps up with summon the Summon the Force deck party and fireworks spectacular. We were blessed enough to go on the inaugural Star Wars Day at Sea a couple years back. It's a blast for Star Wars oh, yeah. fans. If you're a Disney Cruise fan, 
you're a Star Wars fan, I would suggest you uh, looking into to booking that because it's really a great, great time. Oh, yeah, it is fun. It's like you said, it's I can't even describe it. But I mean, just the energy that comes out when that special day is and all the different activities, it, you know, a Disney cruise in itself is so amazing fun. But you throw in that day that is just jam packed with fun and you can't imagine the amount of joy you'll have right one of my favorite parts is if you know if you've ever been on a disney cruise you get out in the halls and there's disney music playing throughout it and that's one of my favorite things about disney cruise is the disney music that just plays at the halls well on the the actual star wars day at sea you walk out in the halls and there's star wars music blaring through the halls there's (laughs) nothing better (laughs) than that it is so great but the whole thing is just fun. And also, you know, they talk about the movie screenings. Yes, most of this takes place on just one single day. But the movie screenings for the Star Wars Day at Sea usually go through the entire... Th- so if you haven't seen one of these Star Wars films that's your favorite on a big screen in a long time, right. it's a great opportunity to, you know, see The Empire Strikes Back, see A New Hope, any of the films that you love on the big screen once again. Yeah, and... Um, it, it is fun to get that. I mean, we get it obviously on Disney plus and you can watch it anytime at the, the many time at home, but the big screen is just amazing yeah, it's, it, experience. It's, it and, and you're in the it. crowd, everybody's happy and cheering mm-hmm. and it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. And they have some great guests that come in and do talks about star Wars. Some people that are really uh, deeply involved within Lucasfilm himself right. will come on board and, and it's really, it really is a wonderful experience. And I, for any star Wars fan, if you like cruising or even if you've never tried it, but you're thinking about it, um, I would, I would really suggest it. Oh yeah, definitely. Totally so, fun. Totally fun. Mm-hmm. So these are, will be on Eastern and Western Caribbean itineraries on the Disney fantasy departing from Port Canaveral. If you have any interest in that. So finally, I'm going to wrap up the Disney stories with the week with if you're curious about what happened to Bo Peep during those years she was <laughs> away from the Toy Story gang, well, you're soon going to be able to find out. A new Bo-focused short entitled Lamp Life is coming to Disney Plus beginning very soon, only on January 31st. The short will reportedly show the trials and tribulations Bo experienced in between Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 4. <laughs> uh, they have a little trailer out right now. You can find it on YouTube or whatever the case may be. It's only like a 30-second trailer, but it's really cute. You should definitely check it out. But uh, you know, I kind of wonder, what, you know, I mean, obviously when you look at Bo Peep in Toy Story and Toy Story 2, right? Uh, you know, she was one. And then in Toy Story 4, she was uh, very, you know, much more experienced experienced character exactly. she's gone through a lot of things we're going to get to find out a little bit about that yeah that's like. so exciting so uh that'll be a lot of fun also i just wanted to put this out there i don't have all the details with me because we've been out of town uh but they've released uh, a lot of the stuff the details about the uh california food and wine uh festival out of the disney california adventure right. park uh so a lot of the details about uh, the wine tasting, all the different seminars, all that stuff is out and tickets are up for purchase now. So uh, definitely look into that if you're interested in attending the California Food and Wine Festival. Yeah, and we were checking that out and saw some things that we right away said, you know, these sound like like must-dos for us. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. So we're looking into booking those very soon and we will be out there probably five or six times. Part of it runs when we're on our our own Disney cruise. I right know. So we're going to miss part of it as we're out at sea. But um, I'm looking, for, we, it is a great time of year. 
Um, and I'm looking forward to experience it once it, it comes here in just a couple months. Yeah, looking forward to it. Love the food. So that's it for the Disney stories of the week. However, we never leave you without giving you some sort of tip that might help you on your next vacation, whether it be a Disney cruise or whether it be to go to Walt Disney World. Disneyland, whatever the case may be, we'd like to give, leave you with some sort of tip that might help you on your next vacation. And we always start with Michelle. One, because she's 80s spectacular <laughs> in her, you should see her right now in her leg warmers and her, her big hair right now. Neon. She looks fantastic. <laughs> yes, all her pastels on. She looks great. But also she just gives the very best tip. So let's get right to uh. it. Here are Michelle's tip of the week. Well, thank you so much. And I am going to say, not to toot my horn, this is a great tip, uh, but it comes from outside of us. Oh, really? Yes. From the most wonderful people, Jonathan and Camille. You can find them on Instagram at Vinyl and Disney and at Disney Bound and Down. And they are amazing. They have a a, an adorable daughter. She is the most beautiful Disney princess in the country. Lorelai. Lorelai. She's <laughs> so cute. You know, I was thinking we need to do like a dance off with her. I know she's going to win, but I think it would be fun to do it. I don't want to be shamed. I, I love to dance, but boy, she puts me to shame. She's got moves. Yeah. She's great. She's great. But anyways, uh, thank you to them for uh, sharing this amazing tip. Uh, it's very timely. So if you're looking to get a boarding pass for Rise of the Resistance, and you have to do the rope drop, obviously, and then as soon as the park opens, you know, start, you know, have that app ready and, and going at it feverishly to try yeah, to get I talked about it a little bit on my tips for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So looking yeah. Back, part of that, but there's, you've got an add on to that. Right. Have an add on to that. And that is to, um, go find an area that one is not crowded with other people, you know? And I think that was one of the things when we did it before, we, uh, even though we got a boarding pass, it was, it's late. It was later in the day than we had hoped. Uh, we were in a yeah, nine fifteen, really late in the day. Oh, really? I thought it was like, like no, 10. No, 9.15. Oh, okay. Anyways, um, well, but, but the park opened at 7, right? <laughs> Just, we had to wait a whole two hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> anyway, um, so we were like in a store and it was a ton of people there. All it was trying cold. To do it. It, we was cold. There. it was cold. We, yeah. were like, we need to get out of the cold. That's why we were in so, the store. But for this tip, when it's getting close to the time that park is open and you're already inside there, go find an area much more secluded than anybody else. Uh, there's even apps that you can get to, to make sure um, you're in an area with a, a strong signal and you'll have better luck usually to get that boarding pass early on in the process. Right. There's some apps out there. I know that this is what they did. I don't know the exact app, but they used an app that kind of uh, could check internet speeds where they were. So they kind of went around and tried to find the spot where the right. internet speed was the best that they can get in. And they got what? They got like group three or something. Yeah. 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 So Thank you again, Jonathan and Camille. We really appreciate all that you bring to um, Disney love and everything. And we appreciate that you shared that tip that we had for today. Yeah, uh, great people. Definitely follow them on Instagram. He is at Vinyl and Disney. She is at Disney Bound and Down. We've had them on the show in the past. We are going to have them on the show yes. again in the future because they are just lovely people. And I uh, look forward to uh, talking more with them soon. So, yeah. So that's tip. my tip, of, or that's a tip of the week <laughs> that I've presented. <laughs> I won't take credit for it. Can't do that. But excellent, excellent. Uh, my tip is going to be very simple here, and that is. 
We just went out last night and saw a wonderful performance by a couple bands, actually, but right. speci- specifically Juliana Hatfield and uh, Michelle's nef- nephew, right. Mike, um, put on a great My show. Godson. Yes. Always your godson, too. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten about that. Yes, that's correct. Um, but relating that to Disney, I want it made me think about how much great music there is out in the Disney parks that you can just enjoy on your daily basis. We always talk about trying to find ways to expand your day, right. make them even better at Disney parks, doing stuff you don't normally do as you're, you know, rushing to the next fast pass, rushing to the next uh, reservation at, you know, dinner reservation, dining reservation, whatever the case may be. Take time and stop and, and listen to some of the music, whether it be just some of the ambient music that's you know going throughout these lands. I just talked about Disney Cruise Line and the music in the halls right. or whatever. BGM. Yeah. Uh, but there's some <laughs> great music uh, going throughout all of the parks at the time. But there's also these great ba- I mean, like just thinking about Disneyland, you know, the Disneyland uh, band right. comes out and plays True. regularly. Uh, the Dapper Dans at both Disneyland and at uh, Magic Kingdom Park are yes. always fun to just stop and listen to every once in a while. The Pearly Band that shows up right. with Mary Poppins a lot of times, so good. But there are so many different periods of time and spaces where there's great music being played. Uh, just stop and, and take a listen and That's just enjoy tip. your part of your day. It's just one more way to make your Disney experience that much more full, you know, just to make it that much more wonderful as you're there because they do a lot to, to fill those those gaps uh, throughout the park. And I, I think you'd really enjoy it if you, if you stopped every once in a while, just like Michelle always says, look up, you know, listen for the music, keep right. your ears open for what's going on around you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That background music, especially, you know, helps you feel more immersed into what's happening around you. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about with all the different type of music and, and how it, you know, whether you're talking about the seasonal dapper dance, how they can be really funny or, you know, the emotional with the, the flag retreat and mm-hmm. the music that they, the band, the Disneyland band or Disney world band plays at that time, you know, is very touching and things. So it, it does all contribute to you having an amazing time. And, and if you, like you said, take that moment to really, you know, embrace it and and think about it and enjoy it it's going to make your experience so much nicer right i mean just thinking also uh, i was thinking about another band that is often playing out at new orleans square out at disneyland uh, there's usually like a a dixie jazz band playing around there too so lots of great music uh check it out have fun out there so that's it for this week uh next week we are spending the weekend with our family (laughs) and many of them are actually going to be joining us on the show michelle looking forward to it yeah so we're going to do a a round of Disney. Oh, it's a secret. It's a secret. Yeah. Oh, I was about to blow. I you was are, about to spoil it all. Yeah. It's a secret. So, <laughs> but we are going to have some fun with our family. We'll let you know about that later on. Yeah, I mean they're they're hoot. We've had some of them on the show in the past, and hopefully having the return for all or most of them, and some maybe some others yeah. adding on, and um, it's going to be some fun Disney fun. Uh, with our family. Yeah, so we're very much looking forward to that, and that's going to be another fun, fun episode. All of, Even though it's my our, our family uh, put together, we're going to be doing a lot of Disney interesting stuff. Again, I don't want to spoil it. Well, I, apparently I wanted to spoil it. <laughs> yeah. You no, know, I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> uh, so luckily she cut me off just in time. So uh, we appreciate you joining us today. In the future, you can find us most everywhere you get podcasts. However, the best place to find us is on our own website, HyperionAdventuresPodcast.com. And while you're there, why don't you just go ahead and sign up for the newsletter? 
please do. You please will do. you will not regret it. You'll, you will you will also not regret <laughs> following us on social media. Well, most <laughs> of the time uh, on Twitter we are at Hyperion Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at Hyperion Adventures Podcast, and you can always email us if you want to contact us at any time on Hyperion Adventures Podcast at gmail.com. And as we've asked in the past, please asked tell in the past. asked in the past. Uh, please tell a friend. We really appreciate when you do that. Please tell a friend about us. That's the best way to let people know about this podcast. And if you have the extra time, give us a rating. Give us a review. We appreciate uh, everything you do. But just mostly, we just appreciate you listening to our show. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for listening to the Hyperion Adventures podcast. We look forward to sharing some time with you again next week. Until that time, I'm Tom. I'm Michelle. And we hope that you have a magical week.